Welcome back to part two of Nirvana on the History of Rock podcast. His name is Brandon. He's the DJ. His name is Shim. He's the rock star. He really screwed up. No, just move. Just move on. Okay, hey, so we're moving on here, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. So the word sabotage is going to be pretty prevalent here, be for a couple of different reasons here in this uh, part of thing. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so what we were talking about in the last episode was... There was a thing with Kurt Cobain. Again, we're talking about Nirvana's Nevermind. Um, let me go through the the quick synopsis again for anybody who might be tuning in for the first time. It's uh, released September 24th, 1991. This, of course, was like the album for a lot of people that really introduced them to grunge. And Butch Vig was the producer on the album, and he mentioned that, yeah, like Kurt Cobain was kind of good to deal with, but there's other times he was a pain in the ass where he'd be great for an hour, and then he would just go sit in a corner for an hour. To which Shim responded, well, he's an artist. Yeah. So that's why I'm not an artist anymore. We then found out we then found out that Shim has actually sabotaged recording sessions. So (laughs) You're making it sound so bad. It's really simple, man. You're the one that said it. You'd be writing a song, you'd be working with a couple other people. And don't get me wrong, I didn't do this my whole career. I remember doing it when I was younger. You'd write a song, you wouldn't like the part, and they'd go, Well, you know, we've kind of written the first verse and chorus, and you go, and they'd say, try it. And you go, all right. And then if you hated the idea, all you <laughs> all you have to do is sing it badly. Because they can't make you sing it well. Like, you if you really of, don't want to sing it. one song that maybe that happened? No, no. The songs, they're, they're, they're never songs that made the cut. Like, if they're, if you, if someone says, hey, man, sing um, lollipops and rainbows. And you're like, dude, that's not what we do. Oh, man, come on. I think it'll be good. Dude, I'm not. I'm not going to sing lollipop. I'm not going to stand in front of 10,000 fans and sing lollipops and rainbows. Come on, man. Just try it. Okay, cool. Lollipops and rainbows. See, it doesn't sound good. So what, like, well, when you sing it like that, what would so you, you sabotage What it. specifically would you do to sing you it You just poorly? sing it. You just sing it uninspired. Here's the thing. This is the thing that people don't realize. <clears throat> and there's a very small club of people who were artists that don't understand it. One of the reasons that people had a problem with Connect, the last, this is, this is, this is great. Connect the last album. It was a disjointed album. It was unsatisfying to the fans. One of the primary reasons that that record sounded the way that it did and didn't come together is because the band wasn't ready to make a record. And we told people, bands fucked up. We don't like each other. We've been on tour too long. We've got some issues. We've got to work it out. And they were like, you've got a contract. You've got a due date. Make a fucking record. So he made the record. But the record didn't sound as good as it should have because when you force someone, when when you're literally saying, go and create art, they're not saying, go and finish the fucking conveyor belt. They're not saying, fix the car. They're like, create things that inspire people. Then that means the person creating it needs to be inspired. So you're if not. you're inspired, no, and if you're not, then you'll make shit that doesn't sound inspired. And that's fine. You'll still make stuff. It just won't be as good as the, the stuff that was inspired because you're not inspired. But people look at it and go, well, you're a fucking artist and you can make a song. So, so we did. We made like a hundred songs for Connect. And by three or four months in, everyone who was working at Label and all that shit, they were like, how come these songs, they're just not very good. And we were like, yeah, because we told you. We were not. We, <laughs> we, war- we just, gave you a heads yeah. up, dude. I literally told them. I said, hey, man, I'll do what you're telling me to do because you're threatening to sue me. But I'm telling you, I, I'm, I've am i done this for a while now. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to write songs that you're going to want to release. I'll write songs, but they're not going to be the things where you go, man, this is the one. And then a hundred songs later, they went, I guess you need a break. And so we took a break that was not 
it was like a month and it was tense and it was awkward and half of it was talking to counselors and bullshit. And it was like, the whole thing was fucked up. So when you go to the thing of like, oh, an artist. So when you say like, hey, sing this thing that sucks and you go, well, that's not, I'm, I don't feel any of that. That doesn't relate to me. That's why Butch Vig saying to Kurt Cobain, he didn't say fucking sing it. It'll sound good. You'll love how you sound when you sing it that way. Do what I fucking said. He said, well, the guy who you admire, he did it this way. And then suddenly Kurt was inspired to double track his vocals because he wanted to sound that good. So you're given, it's kind of like shepherding a sheep through the fucking wilderness, but it's kind of the hey, job dangling, of a You're dangling the producer. carrot. Like you're just kind of yeah. guiding them in the right direction. So when the, when it come, when someone says, hey, sing a song that you know you don't like, that you don't feel, but sing it like it's, it's your baby. Sing it like an artist. It's never going to happen. So you just go, all right, fine. I just told you this ain't working for me. You want me to sing it. So you get up and you sing it uninspired because you are. Yeah, so that's this it. Is... So it's not as much It's not as much like sabotaging. It's just like the thing is when I did it, I'd be a dick about it. And I'd go, okay, cool. I'll get up and sing it. And I'd sing it half fast or I'd sing it over the top or I'd sing it in a way that I knew wasn't going to work because it, it ain't going to work anyway. So fuck it. I'll just rub it in your face because I told Really you. quick, did it ever backfire where you thought you were singing it poorly and everybody's like wow that's amazing yes yeah well no it didn't backfire in terms of sabotage there was a song on <laughs> this is so funny gunfight on connect okay i remember when we when when we wrote that the verse concept was the producer's idea and i was like yeah that's kind of cool because it has a nursery rhyme vibe like howard's tale mm -hmm. and he said yeah but we're not going to sing it like that you're going to sing it like a cartoon character and I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. We're gonna, he was like, we're going to make it sound like a stack of like cartoony. It's going to have a cartoony vibe. And I didn't like it. And I eventually realized that, yeah, it does sound unique and interesting. I probably would have done it differently. It could have gone either way. But I remember in the studio being like, I'll sing it like this because you're, we're trying your idea. But I remember thinking, this isn't going to work and I'm mm -hmm. not going to like this. But you try the idea. Because it was him, it was Tim James, and I have probably more respect for Tim James than any other musician that I've ever worked with or met, because he's a genius. He's an asshole, but he's a genius. And so when he had an idea, I would always try it because most of his ideas made me a better singer. But I didn't learn that until the fucking second album. The first album was painful. So by the third album, I was like, all right. But I remember singing it like a cartoon character and going, this is, I don't even have to try to fuck this up. I don't even have to try to make this sound stupid. Like he's saying, make it stupid. And then he kept it and then we put it on and we stacked it and it was like that does sound interesting i don't know if i like it and it kind of backfired because i could have been like i could have fucked it up but i did it how he said and i couldn't believe that it worked but yeah that was every time you hear it from now on that's going to be a good example of when you hear gunfight you'll you'll think of me in the studio going yeah. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go listen to that song once we're done recording yeah. this. Which it's it's interesting because as when I was down in Florida, I worked as a production director. For anybody who doesn't know in radio business, the production director is the person that makes all the commercials. And I've always been fairly artistic with a lot of different things, audio, video being the thing that I'm really pumping my energies into now. Yeah. And as much fun as it is, it's one of the things that that. I don't want to say it killed my desire for radio because obviously I continued going on, but it, it, it takes a hit because yeah. when somebody comes to you and like, hey, you need to do this commercial, you know, it's it, there's this and we need it tomorrow. 
that takes yeah. any creativity. Like, and they wonder, like, well, why wasn't it good? Because no, I, mean, I had no, can... I, I had no desire to do it. Like, you're forcing this thing yeah. on me in a 24 hour turnaround, and you think you're gonna get some <laughs> fucking gold? No, that's not how it yeah. works. Like, you need now. Now, granted. Producing a radio commercial and producing an album, two vastly different things. Like, they are on the opposite sides of the artistic spectrum. But it's mm. still where it's something, if I am inspired to do it, if it's something that I enjoy, which, honestly, I, I thoroughly enjoy the stuff I'm doing now here with Shim on the history of rock and doing the video game stuff with Original Gamer Life, I love it because I've kind of been given the chance to just go create. Like, you... Yeah. You like there's nobody looking over my shoulder. There's nobody making sure I'm doing something a certain way. There's nobody making sure this needs to be done by tomorrow yeah. and all this other crap. The person who's holding them like it's it's me to myself. When it yeah. comes to the history of rock, it's me going. Okay, we need to do this. We need to do this. We need yeah. to do this. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's your it's your create. I know exactly what you mean, and I feel the same way about this podcast and also about. The song that I've done for Original Gamer Life was the first time that I labored over a song to go, man. I and I knew the moment I started making it, I could hear it, and I, and you'll you guys will hear it soon enough when OG Life launches at the the the, the level that the song is going to be attached to. But the, it's not a song; it's an instrumental piece that's designed to be like a trailer for a video game, and it's the dopest fucking thing. It is so dope, and so I remember when I was doing it, I spent like a month on it, like three or four weeks, just just carving every little thing out which i haven't done in years because i because i really wanted it to be great and no one was there was no deadline it was just hey shim if you made a song for us we will we'll include it in the metaverse and i was like cool here's my vision brandon said cool go ahead that sounds cool and then i was like cool it's on me and i just <laughs> and, and and but it sounds amazing it's got everything it sounds like blade runner mixed with fucking seven dust slipknot it's yeah, so cool. I've I've heard it. It's it's pretty damn fantastic. So for anybody who's curious, Original Gamer Life, that is the company that I'm working for. And you can go find you know, go to YouTube, search Original Gamer Life. That's where you can check out most of the stuff that I'm doing these days outside of this podcast. But we're getting right back into Nirvana and Nevermind here. And one of the tracks on the album has recently kind of gained a lot of attention because it was used in the Batman. Oh uh, yeah. Something in the way. Is Great now choice. up to more than 151 million streams on Spotify. Now I'm not sure what it was before, but like I said, this is just the numbers that I'm able to see on Spotify. I don't have yeah. their secret numbers. It wouldn't be secret numbers, but what it was before then. But the other non-singles from this album, they're under 100 million streams. So obviously, right. the, the, being in the Batman really kind of gave that one a push. And I got to tell you. Yeah. Putting that song to the trailer and having it oh. with the movie, it was yeah. that was a match made in heaven. It, it's good. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Smells like Teen Spirit after that blew up, getting major airplay from MTV, which is the only thing that mattered back then. Uh, this success is considered to be the end of the dominance of hair metal. Yeah, which we've talked about. Obviously, where you know Eddie Vedder and Nikki Six kind of taking some taking some jabs at each other and fucking uh, you know, Eddie Vedder made the comment that Motley Crue was not a band that he would have gone to go see. And... Where's your eyeliner? Where's your eyeliner? You look like you're homeless. This isn't rock. Where's your eyeliner? Your eyeliner. You look like you're homeless and you fucking suck. Yeah, yeah! Where's your eyeliner? I love it. Where's your eyeliner? That's gonna be stuck in my I head. Can, that's I catchy. Imagine, that's gonna be stuck in my damn head. That's that, ladies and gentlemen. That is the second history of rock T-shirt 
Right there. Where's your eyeliner? Oh, uh, by the way, speaking of which, um, I got to get with Charlie because we're going to... Uh, I'm going to be making the purchase for the merchandise. I've got my own stuff with like the Brandalorian logo and things like that. But we're also going to have merchandise. There's going to be just a standard The History of Rock t-shirt. But then the first special edition one we're going to do, it's going to be the Cross-Eyed Bear. And he's currently yes. working on a Cross-Eyed Bear t-shirt. And it's going to be <laughs> the best. But i got to make sure that we do the um, Where's Your Eyeliner. It's got to be another yeah. one, too. Ah, oh, Jesus. All right. So jumping back into Nirvana here. Now, this... I love this part of the story because it talks about where the song title for Smells Like Teen Spirit came from. Now, in August of 1990, Cobain was dating Toby Vale, who was another musician from the Olympia area. Vale would eventually form Bikini Kill, which they were just, they were a badass band. And Kathleen Hanna uh, was in that band. So as the two were uh, walking around the, uh, the grocery store, meeting Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale, they came upon a deodorant called Teen Spirit. Hanna said, we were both joking around because the name looked so funny. I mean, who names a deodorant Teen Spirit? What does Teen Spirit smell like? Like a locker room? Like pot mixed with sweat? Like the smell when, the smell when you throw up in your hair at a party? So then later that night, after many drinks... Hannah found a Sharpie in Cobain's apartment and wrote on the wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. Isn't that prophetic? That's where it came from. It really is. But because now the next no, one. That's okay, fantastic. The next the one. Inter- this, is, this, is, this is another inter- interesting, cool little factoid here. So here we go. I, I make a point of reading half the show notes and leaving the second half for to be surprised. So I don't know what's coming with this. So it is. Interesting side note, the Beastie Boys are very loosely connected to this part of the story as Kathleen Hanna is married to Adam Horowitz, better known as the King A.D. Rock. No, King Ad Rock, Oh, my sorry. God. The King oh, Ad my Rock. God. I don't fucking, the way you wrote it was shit. I'm just oh trying to keep God. up. No, look. Okay, hold on. Hold hold the fuck on. <laughs> if it was A.D. Rock, things. there would be a... It says A.D. It's a capital A and a lowercase d. King, are you... <laughs> Dude, you can, you cannot blame that on me that you don't know where the King Ad Rock. That is my name, and I know the spot where they got the uh, champagne or whatever the fuck it was. See, you got me. Yeah, there going. you go. Keep going. Keep going. God damn it. There's a great there's a great documentary on Netflix called The Punk Singer that's all about Kathleen Hanna. Yeah. Why, if you guys are one? looking, yeah, if you guys are looking for a good documentary to watch, a music documentary, go check out The Punk Singer on Netflix. It's about Kathleen Hanna. It's Excellent. awesome. It's a great one. So oh the name God. of the what 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 I'm reading the next one. Keep going. You keep going. I'm saying oh my God to what you're about to say. I'm saying I'm oh my God. Just go. <laughs> the name of the album was almost cheap. It was an inside joke for Cobain toward the people that he expected to buy the album. He wrote a fake ad for Sheep in his journal that read. Now this is where what I've been able to find about this. It, it doesn't quite make sense, but the quote was because you want to not. Because everyone else is. This was what the ad said. It's so great. I love... I, did you have any idea how many times I've considered putting sheep in my songs? A lot. <laughs> like every fucking... Every... This is what happens when artists... Every artist feels this, this way. By the way, every artist feels this way. Once you get to a level of success where people start to ask you questions... This is how prophetic Kurt apparently was... 
when you get to a point where people ask you questions about what your favorite sandwich is, and you're like, dude, I write songs and I bleed on my fucking songs. Ask me music about, ask, ask me questions about my music. And they like, and, and so at that point you get resentful and people just start to ask the same questions that everyone else are asking and they follow the trend and they follow the whole thing. Nirvana was a prime example of we're not a grunge band, we don't give a shit about grunge and the sheep just followed the fucking trail that Nirvana left. So for him to have written that is amazing because it was before the shit went down. Yeah. But it, bands often at times will look at, they won't look at their fans as sheep, they'll look at the other people, like for example the people that love fucking Nirvana but never heard of the Melvins. That's a fucking sheep. Get it? Yeah, it, well, and Good. it's interesting too because we, as we were just talking about the Beastie Boys. There's yeah. a documentary on them that's on Apple TV, which is again phenomenal. And they talk about how when their first album dropped and they were out on tour and they're singing "Fight for Your Right" and all these like party songs, they realized we originally wrote those songs to make fun of those guys, the frat boys. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. then we became yeah. those guys. Like it was just yeah. it, it went full circle. Dave Grohl was known for saying the same fucking thing when Nirvana would play clubs. Uh, this is one of my favorite things. He was, he, the way that he put it was fantastic. They're playing the clubs. They're they're playing like you know 150 people in a fucking basement, and it's awesome and it's sweaty and it's whatever. Teen Spirit blows up, and now they're playing these sold out shows to these fucking jocks and guys with baggy jeans and ha hats backwards. And he's like, "You used to beat my ass up in high school for listening to this shit." And it's the same shit, and now yep. you're all, you're jumping around, posing. Yeah, the so sheep. there's sheep everywhere. It's fucking sheep everywhere. Sheeples, um, Shim. Sheeples. So now we're getting into the thing that most people have heard of of late. The, sh the album shows a naked baby with a dollar bill on a fish hook just out of reach, which I've always thought is one of the greatest album covers ever. It's like there's, birth, and it's, training from birth. It's considered... Um, one of the greatest album covers of all it time really as well. Is. Yeah. It, it really is. Like, and, it, and it's the thing I love about it is you know exactly what it means. It's like having the Illuminati symbol on the dollar bill. You know exactly what's going on and you just you just put it out of your mind. Yeah. You just go, yeah, you're like, yeah, we've all, we all get it. I just don't want to think about it. And it's so perfectly artistic as a statement. Cobain originally conceived of the idea for the album cover while watching Water Births on TV with Grohl because that's how they rolled back then. They tried different ways to make the album, but ultimately reached out to photographer Kirk Weddle and sent him to a pool for babies to take pictures. They must have super... Did they superimpose? They must have superimposed the dollar bill, or was that real? I think it was real. Fucking so cool. We'll take it back. I mean, it, it could have been. I don't know. That That's not I one of the parts that I saw. And of, of course, we're not going to get too much into it, but the, the baby in the picture, he recently, he tried to sue and say that it yeah, was child pornography and all this other stuff, yeah. and it eventually got thrown out of court. But that leads to the next point here where Geffen, so that was GDC Records that they signed with, so it was David Geffen, or um, it, it was his company. And um, Geffen was initially concerned about the infant's penis on the album, which you it's there. <laughs> they pushed for another cover until Cobain refused and said the only way he would compromise is if a sticker was placed over the penis that said, if you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. That is fantastic. This, like, he, he was, was a goddamn genius. He was. He was. He was a No, he's just... He, he was just real. He was just a real artist. And most of the time... See, I would have probably come up with the same concept. I just wouldn't have actually stuck to my guns at that point in my career. I would never have gone... I would have buckled. I'm not ashamed to say it. Like most people, if a label says we're not putting it out, 
you go, well, alright, put it, like, mute it out, or fucking, you know, crop the bottom half of the kid, or whatever. But to be like, yeah, fuck you, this is what's happening, and, and, and yeah, it's... Well, because no. you gotta remember, this is before they're big. This yeah, is the album the that made them big. Yeah. Like, he, he didn't yeah. have the clout. And by the way, it was yeah. a D, DGC Records. I gotta make sure I get that right. It was David Geffen Company. I, I mixed, I had a little moment there where I mixed all that. So, the, yeah, it was DGC Records for Geffen. So, alright, take it to the next one there, Shim. Nevermind debuted on the Billboard 200 at 144. Geffen shipped about half of the initial U.S. pressings to the Northwest, Washington and Oregon, but it quickly sold out and soon became unavailable. Geffen ended up halting production of all other albums in order to fulfill the demand. I love those stories. And the best thing about it is that Kurt wouldn't have given a shit. He wouldn't have walked around going, hey, just so you know, they had to stop production of everything else because I'm awesome. Like, it's a perfect storm when it comes to this record, man. Yeah, and this oh, thing, sorry. it really began to blow up. So by Christmas of 1991, the album, it was selling 400,000 copies a week in the United States. By January of 92, it overtook Michael Jackson's Dangerous at the number one spot on the Billboard album charts. Which is a big deal, because I remember when Dangerous came out. It was a big deal. I got that record. <laughs> Do you want to know? Can I, can I sidebar for a second? I want to absolutely. tell you one of the lamest Abs- things. One of the oh, lamest God, things absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I love he's like, oh, God, it's going to be a Michael Jackson. Oh, dude, story. oh, no, trust me. I've, I've got some albums and I've got some other stuff that, that we, can, we can fall down this rabbit hole of embarrassment if you'd like. So before Michael Jackson's Dangerous came out, it was bad, right? It was Thriller, was the biggest album of all time, then Bad. I started to listen to stuff uh, around the time of Bad. And my, I, I might have been eight. And my dad had a one of the old-fashioned stereos where you had to, you know, it was like two big speakers and then like a, a tape player and a record player and a, a amplifier at the bottom and they were plugged into each other. And you had some buttons that you had to push to make it go from the tape player to the, to, not even the CD player, to the radio, to the vinyl player. So my dad was like, hey, I'm going to go over to our neighbor's place for like about an hour to do this thing, do you want to come? And I was like, no, no, I'll just stay here and just play with the thing. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to put bad on and turn it up so fucking loud and I'm going to jump around this house for the whole album uninterrupted because that was what I wanted to do. And my dad was like, cool, all right, well, you know where I am if you need me, otherwise I'll be back in an hour. And so I did and then, and and I couldn't find the tape. <laughs> I couldn't find the tape because the tapes were in those things that were the long, the towers where the yeah. tapes would... Oh, yeah, 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 we had those. So I looked and I couldn't find it. And I looked and looked and looked until after about 10 or 15 minutes, I sat in the middle of the living room and cried for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then... And my dad came back in it's and like, thought something was like, wrong. Why the, the fuck you cried? Yeah. Because he said, he, he was angry at me because he was like, I told you, I was right over there. Did you hurt yourself? What the fuck happened? And he and, he, and then I was like, no. And he was worried for a minute until I finally explained what had happened because, and I just said, I'm crying. This eight-year-old boy sitting there crying genuinely. And I was like, I can't find that. <laughs> and he, was, he took him a minute to comprehend and he was like, that's it? It's in the car, like, right? Yeah. No, no. He just went to the tower and he just pulled out one of the things and turned it around and went, you put it in backwards. Oh! <laughs> yeah. And I was just destroyed with embarrassment because one, he knew my guilty secret. Two, I'd totally fucked up. 
And three, it was total. I was just humiliated with embarrassment of like, it was that simple the whole time. I didn't think, I was eight, didn't occur to me. I, oh I, my I, God. I, yeah. That's, but that's brilliant. But I, I would, by eight years old, all I wanted to do was just hold a microphone, run around an imaginary stage, and manifest my fucking destiny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your destiny right now is to read this next one. By March of 1992, Cobain wanted to reorganize the group's songwriting royalties. I saved this one specifically for you, too. Here we go. To this point, they were split equally. But Cobain wanted it to reflect that he wrote the majority of the music. Novoselic and Grohl didn't object, but when Cobain wanted it to be made retroactive to the releases of Nevermind, the disagreements between the band almost caused them to break up. Yeah, this happens to almost every fucking band. Like, and and this going back, this is I, I saw this last week, including Sick Puppy. Billy, no, Billy. We can talk about that in a minute. Billy Corrigan actually talked about the fact that. He, um, Billy Corgan talked about the fact that he wrote all the songs and when he was talking to his original business managers or whatever, they said, oh yeah, the band's going to split the touring in XYZ, but the songwriting stuff, you can choose to split it up between the band equally because you split all the other stuff up. But technically, if you did write the songs, so you can have, you can keep that. And a fucking 18 year old Billy Corgan was like, no, I won't take the money. And he said, it never occurred to me at the time how much resentment that would cause and how much of a problem that would be when they would be, they would buy a new car and I would go buy a new house Mm -hmm. and they would go, they would go to get a new wardrobe and I would buy the fucking, the label. Well, but is the, is the resentment misplaced a little bit? I mean, if you're the one putting in the work, it's, it's, this is one of the biggest that you could do a whole podcast on just this subject because we will you ask. It depends who you ask, and I know people. I know people who have spoken to me when they found out that I split all of my royalties equally the whole time. They were surprised, and then I've had other people come to me and say, "Yeah, that's how you got to do it, man." And it depends on the individual, and it depends on the level that the actual uh, the other people are contributing. Now, if you're like Kurt, if you're like Kurt, and you literally just write the song and bring it to the band and say, "Here are the notes, play along," and you're splitting it with the band, especially since drummers come and go, it's a little bit tough. Like, imagine, for example, that Kurt makes Nevermind with the band, and it's a different drummer that sounds good, but then they fire the drummer, and now the drummer's getting an equal split of royalties in perpetuity for Nevermind, and he's not even in the band anymore, and he was fired because he wasn't good enough. Yeah, but he gets to keep that. So you, then you have all these things in place which are like, hey, you get a percentage of royalties as long as you're in the band. Uh, for, however, there are, there are instances where like Coldplay and U2 had the foresight to say, well, Chris Martin writes the songs, but the band really does bring a sound. But it doesn't really matter, but it kind of does. But more importantly, we want to have a long career. We don't want to deal with this later. So if the singer is humble enough, he'll say, listen... We'll split everything equally, and then everyone can relax. And then, and but here's a good example, right? We had a we had a, one of the drummers. We were talking about the drummer stories, right? Yeah, dehydrated. The drummer who, the drummer who um was dehydrated, the dehydrated drummer, the D and D, uh, the D and D. We were <laughs> fucking. We were in a rehearsal one day, and Emma and I are there with this collaborator, and he come in, and we had there was a riff. And it was really equal. There were times when we would write songs and it was really equal. Not a lot of those songs made it on the record sometimes, but they're just because it didn't happen as often. But 
we would basically sit in the room at times and we and we had this drummer and we just moved over to the States and we um we're jamming on this song and Emma comes up with a riff and I come up with a melody and then the singer comes up with some the other guy who's a singer as well comes up with some lyrics and the drummer's just playing along and then we get to the bridge and the verse chorus verse chorus is written and the drummer literally just stopped everything and he was like stop just just wait and then he's like before you guys write the bridge he goes over to this keyboard that he's got set up next to him and he starts trying to find what chords we're playing because he hasn't had a chance to pick up on it yet because he's only playing drums and then he tries to find a chord progression because he wants to have written the bridge so that he can get an equal share of song royalties is that the and only he, reason he did it 100 percent, 100 percent. he told me afterwards oh yeah at the end of the story because he's doing this and the whole we're vibing and it's great and the song's getting written really quickly and it's a cool fucking thing and everyone's happy and it's going well and the drummer's playing great drums and then he starts to try to write the bridge on the keyboard and the vibe gets sucked out of the room and 15 minutes later we're literally just standing there holding our guitars like whenever you're ready i guess we'll listen to this idea that you're trying to come up with exactly and the singer the other guy comes up to me and whispers mood killer he literally walks up to me and says dude he's ruining the song what what, why is he breaking our song why is he ruining our song and i'm like dude i don't know it's like that song was odd one wasn't it no (laughs) odd one was i love odd one it's one of my favorites but afterwards i said to him in the room after he's come up with this idea and it wasn't a great idea and i said dude why 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 are you doing this like why can't we just play through and just find a bridge and finish the song and he said in the room with the guy there, he was like, because if, if you guys just write the whole thing, I don't get any royalties. Oh, snap. And we all, we all just went, oh. And I said, dude, if you're in the band and you're in the room when we write the song, you get your cut of the song. And he just looked like embarrassed and kind of ghost. He was like, oh, oh. Oh, I just spent like all that, that time doing that, wasting yeah. our time. Yeah. And when I'm in like, reality, I didn't need had. to. That's the deal we had at that time. Did that song make an album? No, it was, it was, it, no. Dude, you, people have no idea. When I say like 90% of the songs that I write, no one hears, it's more like 95. Like people don't realize that you really do write lots of songs. And there's lots of songs that I've got that will never see the light of day because there's writer's conflicts, because I wrote it with a guy who I don't like anymore. All of the songs that Shim performs here are available for you. So we're going to get another song coming up here, but we got to move on to this Headbangers Ball episode. That I watched with Ricky Rackman. It comes from October 25th, 1991. It had Kurt and Chris on it. It's the one, you've probably seen the pictures from this episode. It's the one where Kurt is wearing like the big yellow gown. And it's got like the huge, gigantic, whatever the hell it is on the back. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the reason he he wore that is like Ricky Rackman made a comment about it. And he was like, well, it is a ball. So I dressed up for the ball. Like he's the belle of the ball. And then he... Yeah. Pokes fun at Chris for not wearing his tuxedo, and Chris says, well, at least I asked you out. But anyway, we've also been kind of on a, a mission here as we're diving into the word grunge, the meaning of the word grunge, where it started, everything else. We've tracked it. You can track it back to Green River and one of their sub-pop releases over there. But as they're going through this, they originally are discussing the album Bleach. Because, of course, this episode airs about a month after Nevermind was released. So they're discussing Bleach, and they mention that they were on Sub Pop, and they mention that the label is out of Seattle, but at the beginning there is no mention of the word grunge. It wasn't like top of mind at this point yet. Top of mind. So they talk about how they aren't technically from Seattle because Kurt lives in Olympia and Chris lives in Tacoma. So obviously if you're from that era, you would know that those are different different cities. 
Rackman talks about the big emerging Seattle rock scene, and then he goes on to mention Alice in Chains and the Soundgarden, by the way. I don't know if he did that on purpose. I think it was just, it might, I, I don't think it was, he was saying it as the Soundgarden. I just found it funny, so I made a, a, a note of that. But then he goes on to ask them about playing shows with some of those bands where Chris says no. They worked with some other bands like Mud Honey and Tad and Fluid. And then Rackman finally uses the word grunge. So Chris talks about how they were into Black Flag and they were into punk, and they just sort of fell into the Seattle thing because originally they were from Aberdeen, to which Rackman then says uh, the way they're categorizing it, they're calling it part of this grunge sound, and now they've said Nirvana is the newest band in this. I hate putting labels on things, but they're saying that you're the newest of the new grunge sound. And I tidied that quote up big time. I watch a lot of these Headbangers Ball episodes, and it blows my mind because it's just Ricky Rackman. He's you know, you know, like he's you know. A good yeah, look, I, look, I don't know. I don't want to throw throw shade at Ricky Rackman, but as I'm watching him, I was like, damn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then, so Chris responds to that, and he says, "I'm starting to understand what grunge is." It's like if you have heavy metal and a lot of it's the same guitar sound. I think grunge has to do with a guitar sound. At this point, Kurt then interjects where he, he's he's tuned out of this interview. He's got his sunglasses on. He's got the dress on. He's jumped out. He's on and fucking he's heroin. Kinda, and he's People just kind of sitting, sitting back and he, a little bit under his breath, goes, it's a fun title <laughs> about grunge. And then Chris says, grunge is more organic guitars like Mud Honey." They have their crazy-sounding guitars, and Tad, just totally growly, like a different sound. And that yeah. was sort sort of the first time, at least that I've been able to really find, on these Headbanger Ball episodes where they're talking about grunge or the first mention of grunge. Because we know after this, ne- ne- uh, Nevermind had been out for a month, and so yeah. it was over that winter, over December into the next March, where it just it blew up and absolutely yeah. skyrocketed. To the top. So, of course, now we're going to get to the reviews of Nevermind. Because apparently in the beginning, a lot of publications ignored this album. And I love the way they always go back afterwards, though. And they're like, dude, but that, but if you're there and you remember, no. It wasn't after Smells Like Teen Spirit blew up. Suddenly, print publications were splant- scrambling to cover the album. I read that totally fucking wrong. That's all right. So- <laughs> This is why, You're on the, the opposite the, side of the planet. I'm just assuming yeah. that the letters are upside down for you. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, but basically, yeah, they're, 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 this this goes back to sheep. This goes back to Kurt's exact thing of sheep. He, everything he did and said was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, go ahead, Brandon. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy. I really slowed that down too because I, I was going to screw that up. <laughs> but, but the next one here, so uh, Karen Schomer of the New York Times. About Nevermind, she wrote, With Nevermind, Nirvana has certainly succeeded. There are enough intriguing textures, mood shifts, instrumental snippets, and inventive word plays to provide for hours of entertainment. She even took a shot at some other bands when she was reviewing Nevermind. As she said, it's more sophisticated and carefully produced than anything peer bands like Dinosaur Jr. and Mud Honey have yet offered. Wow. And, but unfortunately, she is correct. Yeah. She's I mean, I'll, I'll I'll dig some Dinosaur Junior in Mud Honey. No, I dig it, but you can't compare. Like, no, there's I a mean, reason. No. 
and it's, there's it's a reason this, this is one album, of the best selling albums of all time. It's yeah, because it's Sheep bought the goddamn thing. It was all yeah. Sheep. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a negative review. Okay, I'm reading this. Yeah, article. man. See, this I'm telling you, I love, 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 love. So if anybody out there, if you're able to find an original negative review of any of the albums, whether it could have been Mother Love Bones, Apple, it could have been Temple of the Dog, Pearl Jam's uh, 10, any of these albums that we've talked about. If you can find original reviews that were negative of that album, please, yeah. please, please, please send them to me. We will cover them in an upcoming episode. We won't Hell yes. have to do a full we'll do deep a whole, dive on the album, but... We should do a whole episode just of the negative reviews. Like, we'll do, like, when, once we get to 10 or 20 albums, we'll do one podcast of just people that just took a dump on the record. God, that's what I'm saying. If anybody's, if, if anybody, if you're able to find really, I mean, we found this one here that came from the Boston Globe, but if you're find, able to find other negative reviews, please, please, please send them to me. You can find me on Instagram at the Real TheRealBrandalorian. Uh, you can send me a message there. Link, tell me what to Google, whatever it is, please, by all means, do that. But Shim, go with a negative review. The Boston Globe reviewer Steve Morris, his name comes up a lot, said, most of Nevermind is packed with generic... Punk pop that had been done by countless acts from Iggy Pop to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Adding, the band has little or nothing to say, settling for moronic ramblings by singer-lyricist Cobain. Fucking great. Sing about it. Sing about it. <laughs> Sing about it. Dance, cheap. Dance. Yeah. What are we going to fucking... Try to hold on. Let me move this and make sure you can hear it properly. You got... Hold on, hold on. You got to go back and cut out on you there. What? The guitar did. Did sound off? On. Did the original sound on. Here we go. I can't imagine. It's generic. It's been done before. Iggy Pop's better. So are the Peppers. Blah, 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 blah. That's all I hear from. This fucking shit band. So everyone knows I'm a stupid fucking asshole for the rest of my life. <laughs> and that's how it's done. So going on here, we're getting ready to wrap up this episode, but we have some of the awards and nominations when it comes to Nirvana's Nevermind. We had 1992. This is going to be a long fucking I, list. I, no, I, I, trust me. I, I, I'm keeping it tight here where I'm only doing some of the big <laughs> ones. American, <laughs> American Music Awards, it was nominated for Favorite New Heavy Metal Slash Hard Rock Artist. And again, if I'm saying nominated, it means it didn't win. It was just nominated. Grammy Awards, 1992. Nevermind was nominated for Best Alternative Music Performance. 1993, Grammy Awards. Smells Like Teen Spirit, nominated for Best Hard Rock Performance and Best Rock Song. Can I pause you? When they say they were nominated for the Grammy, is that the one that Pearl Jam won? Now, you know, I was trying to look that up. Because I remember there was there was, there was was some things. Which like one Pearl are you Jam talking about, 92 or 90, 93? 92. Um, no, I'm talking about when they for the for the Grammys. Nevermind was be, um, nominated for best alternative music performance, and I think that that's the one where no ten... Tom Waits won that year. Apparently, oh Jesus! Oh wait, no, me. that can't be right because it doesn't even have Nirvana listed here. Yeah, no, I was gonna say it'd be funny if it was uh, there was one where Pearl Jam won, and people were like kind of happy but kind of not, depending on who you are. And then you go to Spotify and you see like Nevermind's just crushing Pearl Jam. <laughs> no, but that is something that that I want to 
I was going to do, but I ran out of time uh, because I wanted to do not only just, hey, here's what they were nominated for and here's what they won, but here in the categories that they did not win, here is who won. But I just I yeah, ran yeah. out of time. So That's okay. Um, we'll maybe come back to that next week. But uh, then we going. had, uh, for 1992, um, the MTV Video Music Awards nominated for the Video of the Year and Viewer's Choice. It won Best New Artist in a Video and Best Alternative Video. There you go. Excellent. So to wrap up this episode, we're going to do some continued education. I don't need to read you the whole synopsis of this stuff, but there's a lot of really good documentaries out there. There's one called Classic Albums, Nirvana Nevermind. There's 1991, The Year Punk Broke, and Nirvana Live, Tonight, Sold Out. It's all stuff that you can find. And there's another one. I'll mention it. Should we put it. links? Should we put links in? Links um, in we'll if you can find somebody the, to the go to the trouble of finding the links, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the time to do it, man. Nightmare. Nightmare. Um, there you go. Um, but yeah, so really quick, there's there's a couple of really good documentaries out there, and there's one that I think everybody should watch, and it's got some reenactments in it. Have you ever seen Soaked in Bleach? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, but what's what are you going to talk about from that? Is that the one where... That's it's the one Courtney where they Courtney. point the finger at Courtney Love. They're like, yes, she it had is. Him killed. It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight up. It is that. Soaked in bleach. And there's that fucking guy. That was the most harrowing thing when he's on camera saying, yeah, she came up and she offered me 10 grand to go kill Kurt. And then he didn't do it for some reason. And then when they went back a few couple of months later to talk to him again, he'd mysteriously died by falling asleep on the train tracks down the street from his house. Yeah. That's fucked up. Go check out Soaked in Bleach. It's only got it's got like one in a in in two thirds stars on Rotten Tomatoes. But I I thought Dude, it was no, great. I thought it no, was eye opening. Just in the sense, of, I don't. I'm not saying like, oh my god, she totally did. Like this is the true story. No, it's just a that. really. I, I like it was. We're gonna do a a section called Shim's Tin Hat Corner. <laughs> And it's where you're going to put on like a tinfoil hat and we're just going to go through all these crazy conspiracies. But anyway, final note here for um, uh, this episode as we wrap up on Nirvana's Nevermind. On this date, September 24th, 1991, which is when the album was released, the number one song was Color Me Bad's I Adore Me Amore. Me Amore. The song Ah. and video. Oh my God. Did you, should we say that? The song and video are terrible on a whole new level. I'm being serious, man. It's like, really bad. Oh, it's uh, color me bad. So here's what you I need love- to do as we're wrapping up this episode. You need to go find some of these documentaries again. One more time. You've got classic albums, Nirvana, Nevermind, 1991, The Year Punk Broke, Nirvana Live, Tonight Sold Out. Those are things that you can go check out. By all means, Soaked in Bleach. I would recommend Definitely. it. I mean, it's it again. I'm not saying like, oh my god, it's all completely true. And Courtney Love had him killed. I just found it interesting. Coming from a different perspective when it comes to you know Kurt Cobain, it's very but interesting. go to YouTube and look up "Color Me Bad." I adore Mia Moore. The first thought that popped into my head was Rex Manning from um, Empire Records. Right. Say no more, more no more. Have you ever have you seen Empire Records? I've I've seen it. I don't remember the thing you're oh, talking about. Oh, he's so he's the pop singer that shows up. To oh, sign yeah, albums, yeah, and he's yeah. like a total dick. That guy. Yeah. That's that's Rex yeah, Manning. Yeah. It's Rex Manning Day. Oh my God, April's here. Rex Manning Day is right around the corner. Son of a bitch. Hold on, Shim. I need serious? you. I need you. Yeah, shut up. I need you to sing a song with the title "I Adore Mia More." Just riff it right now while I look something up. Could you do that? Great. <laughs> 
This is okay. I got no idea where we're going with this. This is how we do it. Fucking. How are we gonna do it, Lightning? I adore me more. She's such a whore, yeah. She makes me feel so good when I'm tied up on the floor, yeah. When she whips me and she beats me and she tells me I'm no damn good, me amore. You're a whore. God, that's brilliant. So Rex Manning Day is April 8th. So by the time this episode drops, it will have already been Rex Manning Day as we're recording this at the beginning of April on a Monday. But hopefully you celebrated Rex Manning Day appropriately. You posted it on social media because it is Rex Manning Day on April yeah. 8th. Yeah, what, what Brandon said. Goddamn right. All right, on that note, let's uh, wrap this bad boy up. We're uh, Wow, we're... we're long on this one. That's what she said. We're long on this one. That's what she said. But no, it's, never, it's never mind. It's not like we're covering 10. Ooh, Ladies and gentlemen, did you hear that one, Jammies? <laughs> Jammies, I hope you clip that, and I hope that you send, just comment. Just write comments. Just flood it with comments. Just about write how comment. No just write good. the word comment. That's all. Like, just may- do that. Down yeah, below, here on YouTube, like- my channel, Shim's channel, you know whatever, what just j- write the word comment. You know what the Jammies, the Jammies think you're a whore, Shim. How about that? Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> So please, as usual, if you have anything to add or any uh, comments, questions, things that we that you think that we missed that should be included, please write them in the comments section on YouTube. If you're watching this on Spotify, go to YouTube and check it out. Um, and then Brandon's going to run the socials, and we're going to sign this off. Yeah, so you can always hit us up. You can find me at the Real Brandalorian, uh, pretty much anywhere. Instagram, Twitch. You can also find Shim. It is either at Shim or at Shim Music. Look for his blue check mark. I'm going to get that blue check mark before two twenty uh, twenty two is up. That's the goal. Yeah. So I need Excellent. your guys' help. We need to do that to get uh, 2022 here to give me the blue check mark. Excellent. And in so. the meantime, we will see you next week for whatever the next album is, which will be announced shortly. Yeah, that's it. His th- name is Brandon. He's the DJ. I haven't even thought that far yet. His name is Shim. Uh, He's the rock star. Class dismissed. That's what a fucking ending. Right. <laughs> Clear. Clear.